0: We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 34. After um, after Rebecca and Jacob deceived Isaac and Esau, Jacob had to leave or be killed by his brother. And so he went to Ran. And he stayed there for 14 years working for his uncle, Laban, Rebecca's brother. And while he was there, he married Leah and he married Rachel. He had 11 sons. And in the due course of time, he was ready to go home, but Laban convinced him to stay another six years. And those six years were a continuation of mistreatment, being treated uh, uh, disrespectfully, um, cheating him, until finally uh, Jacob was ready to go home. And God told him that it was time to go home. Because uh, in all of that, what had happened was God had continually blessed Jacob. And he'd become very wealthy and was very successful in his service in those 20 years. And it got to the point where Laban and all of his brothers and everyone that was connected to him had their eyes on Jacob's back. And so he knew it was time to go. And and God told him it was time to leave. And Jacob conversed with this, with Leah and Rachel in the field. And they came to an agreement that this was what God wanted them to do. And they left. But when they left, they left deceptively. And, you know, not only did Rachel take... Laban's household idols, but they, they, they left in a, in a sneaky way. And all of this came to a head at the mountain range of Gilead, which is just to the east side of the Jordan River. You can see it there on the map uh, above the Dead Sea and to the right. And so this is where Laban caught up with Jacob, and they came to a, a truce of sorts. But it put an end between the relationship between uh, these two people. Uh, that came to an end on that day. And it was dramatic because uh, Laban and his family, Nahor and and Terah, Abraham's dad, they they stayed in their idolatry, but Jacob didn't. And so there was a separation there. And as this was occurring, 400 men were accompanying Esau to come to see Jacob. And so uh, God had told Jacob that he was going to be okay He told him that he was going to be with him. He told him uh, a number of promises about things that was going to happen in the future with him. And God had actually uh, appeared to him before he went to Haran and after he went to Haran. And he even showed him angels. And so on paper, there's really no reason for Jacob to have doubted God. But, uh, you know, Jacob couldn't get over the fact that 400 men were coming at him. And he didn't have 400 men, not even close. And so uh, he was afraid. And so what happened was when Esau got there, Esau had forgiven his brother. He ran to him and he hugged him and they kissed him and they wept. And Esau even invited him to come home with him, to live with him and his family and eat them. And sometimes when people invite you to do things or they offer something to you, but it's really not proper for you to accept it. It's a nice gesture, and it's a sincere gesture, but it's just probably not what you should do. Uh, that's kind of what this was like. Jacob knew that he shouldn't go down to Edom and live with his brother. It wasn't going to work out in the long run. But instead of just telling him that, he lied to him and said, oh, I'm coming there, but I'll just follow away, follow along in a little bit. And so after Esau had left and he was returning back to Edom, which is directly south, Jacob and all of his family crossed the Jordan River to the west, and they came to the city of Shechem. And Shechem sits between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. It's about 15 miles north of Bethel. Um, if you were to travel from Shechem to Bethel, it would be uphill because of the elevation, but they're about 15 miles apart. And because Jacob was a farmer and he had livestock, you know, they would have lived outside of the city. But this is where they went. And this brings us to the dark 34th chapter of Genesis. So we'll begin reading uh, chapter 34, verse one. It says, Dinah, Leah's daughter, whom she bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women of the area. And we're not gonna put this all on her, but right here we see that she is socializing with the people of Canaan. And so the events that transpire here begin with this decision of hers. Uh, she left the safety and protection of her family and began to socialize with these people. In verse 2, when, when, Shechem, uh, when Shechem, who is the son of Hamor, the Hivite, uh, a prince of the region, and so uh, the king of sorts, or the chieftain would be Hamor, and his son is Shechem, and the city is named after him, and he is a, considered a prince of the region. And when he saw her, when he saw Leah, or when he saw Dinah, he took her and he raped her. And he became infatuated with Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young girl and he spoke tenderly to her. And then he said, get me this girl as a wife, to, he, he said, told his father, Hamer. When Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were with his cattle in the field, he remained silent until they could return. Well, meanwhile, Shechem's father Hamer came to speak with Jacob. And while this is occurring, Jacob's sons returned from the field. And when they heard about the incident and were they were deeply grieved and angry for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter and such a thing should not be done. Hamer said to Jacob's sons, my son Shechem is strongly attracted to your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Enter marry with us. Give your daughter to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here and move about and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Grant me this favor and I'll give you whatever you say. Set for me the compensation and the gift. I'll give you whatever you ask of me. Just give me the girl to be my wife. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamer deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. We cannot do this thing, they said to him. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We We will agree with you only on this condition if all your males are circumcised as we are then we will give you our daughters, take your daughters for yourselves, for ourselves and live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go." Well, their words seemed good in the eyes of Hamer and his son Shechem. And the young man did not delay doing this because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most important of all his father's house. So Hamer and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to them in there. He said, these men are peaceful toward us, the Israelites. They uh, Let them live in our land and move about in it. For indeed, the region is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only on this condition. If all our men are circumcised as they are, won't their herds and their possessions and all their livestock become ours? Only let us agree with them and they will live with us. So all the able-bodied men listened to Hamer and his son Shechem and all the able-bodied men were circumcised. On the third day when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city and killed every male. They killed Hamer and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dinah away from Shechem's house and went away. But Jacob's other sons came to the slaughter and they plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. So they were involved in this too. They took their sheep, cattle, donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, children and wives, and plundered everything in the houses. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they answered, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? So we see some things happening there. We see that Dinah uh, made the first bad move. And um, we're going to find out in chapter 35 that, uh, that idolatry had permeated all of Jacob's home, all of his children, uh, all of the people that were attached to him, that they had very much uh, synchronized with the Canaanites. Uh, They believed in the one true God, but they also worshipped these other gods. So uh, Dinah's not the the bad guy here, so to speak, uh, but certainly the chain of events began when she left safety. And uh, we see that the option here is to intermarry with the Canaanites, to live with them. To become one people. And so this is one of many attempts that Satan makes to destroy the lineage that he is designed, that God has designed to, to, to bring the Messiah. And uh, even though Simeon and Levi started this, the other sons were involved. And when Jacob finally confronts them about it at the end, they didn't have a repentant heart at all. They just disagreed with their dad. You know, God made promises to Abraham, a whole bunch of them, and they were unconditional promises. But Abraham and Sarah had a really hard time trusting God when things were difficult. Maybe that sounds like somebody you know. Um, Sounds like me. Uh, Probably yourself could say that as well at times. Uh, We remember Abraham, uh, when they went into Egypt, they lied. And that was a disaster. And when they were with Abimelech, they lied again, and that was bad. And because Sarah was barren, Abraham and Sarah decided to have a child with Hagar. And of course, Ishmael and his descendants have caused nothing but trouble ever since for the nation of Israel. And so all of these things are examples of when we have a difficult situation and we decide that we're going to... um, Solve it or resolve it in our own strength and in our own mind. We're going to take matters into our own hands. And it just makes things worse. You know, God intentionally waited until Abraham and Sarah were too old to have children. And he did that on purpose. He did that to... It it, it tells us that. He did this to, to prove that he was ultimately in control of everything that was happening. And to prove that he keeps his promises... And it shows us the foolishness of when we don't trust God. Um, God has proven himself, and he's proven himself reliable. And so when we don't trust him, it's not a, a wise decision. And so when we see Abraham and the decisions him and his wife made, we can see this. And in the same way, we can see the exact same thing when we look at the lives of Isaac and Jacob. Struggling with God, struggling to trust God. And even though he is in complete control, uh, they're making many of their own decisions on their own. And that's how things like Genesis chapter 34 happen. Now, obviously, Genesis chapter 34 is an extreme example. But from personal experience and personal observation, and maybe you could say the same thing, bad decisions can lead to very bad consequences. You know, our Bible study that we had on Wednesday night just based upon some of the questions that were asked and um, some of the uh, um, some of the uh, feedback I had later uh, made it pretty clear to me that I could have done a better job at explaining what I was trying to say. And uh, this was very disappointing to me because I really tried. But um, more importantly, because what we were talking about is, is the foundation. Um, it is foundational to everything that we're studying in the book of Genesis. It is uh, what brings all of this to life in the book of Genesis. Uh, when we see what it is that God has actually done for us. Uh, Wednesday night we were studying the subject of salvation. And many of you were there. And when that subject is discussed, there's usually kind of a little tug of war inside of each one of us when we hear about the things that God did and then the things that we do. And this kind of how do these things connect. And we looked at how salvation could be compared to a coin that has two sides. On one side of the coin is what God does. And on the other side of the coin is what we do. And what we do is, um, because we're human and we live here, we don't live in heaven and we don't really see a lot of the spiritual world and uh, we sin and it's just, um, uh, we think on a very earthly level a lot of times. And so when we think about salvation, our attention is basically on, on us and the decisions that we make and whether we're obedient or not obedient. And... The point is, is that both sides of the coin, what God does and what we do are equally true. They're both completely 100% valid. Uh, On our side of the coin, um, God holds us accountable if we believe in him or not. We are held accountable if we choose to live our life for him, uh, if we accept Christ as a savior, or if we don't accept Christ as as our savior. Um, It's our decision, it's a real choice that we make and uh, if it wasn't, then God couldn't hold us accountable for it, could he? You know, John 3.16 in Sunday school was, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever, anyone, believes in him. And in Romans 10.13, it says, whosoever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is a, uh, that aspect of things focuses on our responsibility as people. Um, how we respond to God's truth, and whether we believe or not. But the problem is that because of our pride, we try to insert our side of the coin into God's side of the coin. We try to insert ourselves into what God does. You know, but the truth is, is if if God didn't do what he did, then there wouldn't be another side to the coin. The only reason there is another side of the coin, our, what we do, is because of what God did. It's very important for us to remember that um, God doesn't react to us, but we react to him. Everything that occurs on our side of the coin is secondary. It is 100% authentic, but it's secondary. And this is what we observe in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob. We see God having a plan, and he has a plan. He's revealed his plan, and he has promised that the plan will come true. It's an unconditional plan. It's an unconditional promise. And as we follow the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see this plan being accomplished. But it's being accomplished while Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob struggle to trust God. this is a picture for us. Um, I would ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. this is where we went uh, Wednesday night Romans chapter 8. in, in, in Romans chapter 8 verses uh, 20 or 28 through 30. God gives us the chronology of salvation. He gives us the sequence of events. But the sequence of events that are given to us in these verses are from God's side of the coin. It's from His side. It is from that perspective. Verse 28, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. He's talking about those who are going to be redeemed. Those who are called according to his purpose. Another word for purpose would be his will or his plan. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So there's your plan. There's your sequence of events. There's... God's plan, there's God's purpose, there's foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. And you'll notice that all of those things are spoken of in the past tense, because in the mind of God, as far as He's concerned, this is accomplished. It may be playing out in real time, but it is done deal as far as He is concerned, which is good news. You know, if I decide to write a book Um, I'm going to plan it out. I'm going to know how it begins. I'm going to know how it ends. I'm going to know the things that's going to happen in the middle. I suppose somebody might write a book and not know how it's going to end, but it's probably not going to be a very good book because if you've ever read a book or watched a movie, we, we all know that as it unfolds, there are a lot of questions that are raised and a lot of dilemmas and unfinished things, and it all begins to come to fruition at the end. And so you pretty much have to know where you're going when you write a book. And so, if I write a book and I make the decision that, say, chapter 22, one of the main characters is going to receive Christ as their Savior, that's a decision that I make. I've decided that this person, this main character in chapter 22, is going to be rescued. And so, I have a plan, I have mapped it out, and then I have set my affection on that main character that I'm going to rescue in chapter 22. That's foreknowledge. Foreknowledge doesn't have anything to do in the Bible with actions of people, the decisions that people make. It has to do with people, people themselves, the wicked, the nation of Israel, um, the elect, those he's going to redeem. This is how the Bible speaks about people and foreknowledge. In Acts 2.23, he speaks of Jesus in that way. It's about people. It's how God has set his affection on a certain person. That's foreknowledge. And then, I'm going to orchestrate all of the events in my book to where it culminates in chapter 22 where this person receives Christ as their savior. That's predestination. The only reason the character in chapter 22 accepts Christ is because I made that decision. The character's decision is real but it is secondary to mine. First John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. You might be thinking, well, isn't God omniscient? Doesn't that mean foreknowledge mean that He can just see what we're going to believe? Well, yes, God is omniscient. And yes, God does know every infinite detail of His own plan. But to suggest that God reacts to us is... An attempt to insert ourselves into his side of the coin. And the only reason we talked about this on Wednesday night in so much detail was hopefully, I was hoping that it would be, um, it would help us to better appreciate how secure our salvation is, to realize that, um, how bad we are, how, how, um, how completely saturating the sin is, sin nature is in, in us as a person. Um, how it permeates everything that we are, our emotions, our our mind, um, our bodies. Everything is is corrupted. And it's not something that we can fix. We can't fix that, you know. I I gave the example of spitting in a glass of water and then stirring it up and then handing it to you. Well, you're not going to drink it. And you can't get that spit out of that. It's in all of it. No thanks. You know, and so this is the, the the dire, helpless situation of man when he is born into sin, and that sin comes to fruition in our lives. We just we just sin. We've got a sin nature, and we're helpless. And God decides to rescue us. It's a decision that He makes, and it's something that only He can do. It's not something that we can accomplish. Um, Uh, He decided to rescue us by His grace and His mercy so that one day we will stand before Him blameless. When you think about God's plan and how He is unconditionally accomplishing the plan and how it involves our redemption, that's the basis of our security. That's the basis of our assurance for our salvation. Isn't it good that your assurance doesn't rest on you and how well you do. Look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at yourself, look at me. Isn't it good that my salvation doesn't rest on my shoulders? And so this is the, the most important thing that we can see is, as we watch these men's lives unfold, these men and their wives unfold, and their children, is we see God loving them, He's faithful to them even though they, while, even though they are unfaithful. And he's still accomplishing what he has set out to accomplish. That's the security of our salvation. Um, in Hebrews chapter six, this is one of those chapters that some of you might be kind of familiar with, but in verses 13 through 20, it tells us that, that God made promises to Abraham and he used himself as the guarantee because there's no one greater than him to swear by. So he has to swear by himself. And the author of Hebrews says, This is is amazing because there are two unchangeable facts that are tied up in that. One is that his promise is based upon himself and that part of his character is that it is impossible for God to lie. In verse 17 it says, uh, because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. And he did so so that we who have fled for refuge to Him might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. If everything goes as planned next Sunday, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 35. And it's a great chapter because it begins to show us how to come back from making a mess of things like Genesis chapter 34. And... We've got our Bibles open to Romans 8. And I don't know if you've read a hand or not. But the chapter doesn't end with verse 30. After this sequence of events on God's side of the coin on what He does. And remember, I'm not trying to minimize anything about what we do. Because we come to faith in Christ. We put our faith in Him and we trust Him. That's very real. And people who don't do that are going to be held accountable. So there's, it's a very real. It's not to minimize that. So much of the Bible has to do with that side of things. But here, we see these things that God does in His purpose and His plan. And then verse 31, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare His own Son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger of sword. As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's close in prayer.